Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me via telecommunication are Charles Baxley, who is chairman of the South Carolina Commission for the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War, and Steve Smith with the South Carolina Institute for Archaeology and Anthropology. We're going to be discussing Parker's Ferry, the Battle of Parker's Ferry, and the Liberty Trail in South Carolina. So with that introduction, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Good morning. Good morning, Walter. Thanks for having me. Of course, talking about the American Revolution in South Carolina is has long been one of my hobby horses, and I'm especially delighted to have you two gentlemen on. Let's kind of set the stage, Charles, for Parker's Ferry. In today's terms, where is it and so forth? And then we'll put it in historical context back to 1781. Well, um, Parker's Ferry is over the Edisto River, and it, it crosses the Edisto River at a point downstream from where Highway 17A goes through Cottageville and upstream from Jacksonboro. So it's about halfway. And it was a main crossing during the 18th and 19th centuries, and it was a, an important strategic point. So that's um, why Parker's Ferry was there. Uh, there's no ferry there now, but there is a, a road that um, you can get to Parker's Ferry on uh, when the weather's about not been too wet. Can people visit this battle site? Well, right now, the um, South Carolina Battleground Trust, with the help of a lot of friends, have purchased the actual battle site. The battle site is not marked. It's approximately one mile southwest of the actual ferry. Um, it's in woods. There's a one-lane uh, dirt road that's uh, passable during dry weather. It will be marked in the future. Um, but there are many books out there that you can get to read a little bit about what happened at the battle. Um, so this is very exciting to start seeing something come from the ground up. This is one of South Carolina's many battlefields that was lost to human memory. Of course, for the probably 100 years after the battle, everybody local knew where it was. And then it got lost until um, Steve Smith and his crew rediscovered it in the last few years. All right, Steve, let's let's talk about that. You have long worked on the career and exploits of Francis Marion, and the battle at Parker's Ferry is considered an exemplar of Marion and his tactics. So how did you get involved with this process? Uh, well, you're exactly right. I've been interested in Francis Marion since the 1990s, beginning with looking at for Francis Marion's camp on Snows Island, um, and I was hired by the um, now dormant Francis Marion Trail Commission to find and locate uh, as many archaeological sites that are associated with Francis Marion in the early uh, 2000s, uh, and this was one of the sites that I was able to discover Later on, uh, I was given a grant from the American Battlefield Protection Program to return to the battle site and do additional work, uh, which led me to figure out exactly how the battle unfolded. There is a very important report that Marion left describing the battle, and it was always a mystery to me because it never actually seemed to fit with other eyewitness accounts. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. But when I went into the field, did the archaeology, and looked at the history along with our results from the archaeology, everything just came together. All right. So when you, you go to an unexplored site like this, how do you go about finding, you know, are you post-holing? Are you putting it off into squares? What's your process? Well, both those processes are standard archaeology, but in the case of uh, military sites, sites where we're looking for evidence of military activity, the most efficient and best way to do such sites is by using a metal detector in a controlled manner. We block off areas, we try to clear those areas as best as possible, and we then do systematic uh, lane by lane, overlapping lane. Um, transects across the site with different detectors and different people 
to eventually find and, and then record all of the items that you're going to find on a battlefield, such as, in this case, 18th century battlefields, lead shot, gun parts, any kind of metal item that would be associated with warfare, swords, bayonets, um, and those sorts of things. And that's what we were able to find at this battlefield, which helped us to determine exactly what happened. All right. Is the dirt road that's there now, is that the causeway that Marion referred to in his description of the battle? Yes, it is. So, uh, it's amazingly there. <laughs> it's obviously much wider than it was at that time, but it is there. And interestingly enough, and most importantly for my discovery, was that the site is located at a T-intersection, and the, it's the intersection of the Parkers Ferry Road and Round O Road. And I was intrigued by that intersection. And as a result of the archaeology we did and, the, and looking at the history, I'm convinced that Marion purposely set up the ambush on that T-intersection for the purposes of being able to effectively use his cavalry, which were all swordsmen. There are actually higher places of higher ground where he could have set up, you know, an ambush along that road, which would have placed him uh, firing downward towards the enemy. But this was this was a perfect location for the people he had and the the resources he had to surprise and ambush the British. It really is a, uh, as you say, an exemplification of uh, Marion's tactical genius. Well, you know, you're you're talking about a highway intersection in the 18th century, and I'm sure 21st century listeners will say, what kind of roads? Well, actually, colonial South Carolina had a relatively efficient road system. Uh, Every parish, which was the political subdivision of of the colony, you had to serve on a road commission, and you were responsible for maintaining uh, bridges, ferries. Uh, so the transportation network was pretty good for the 18th century. So that crossroads, uh, and in many cases, of course, crossroads would become a community. That didn't happen in this case. But in terms of connectivity with the rest of the colony and going down towards the coast, it was an important locale. Yes, and, and as, as Charles pointed out, this, this was a well-used road um, going back probably to the early part of the 18th century, like 1718, I think, or uh, the 17-teens anyway, is the first indication of anyone actually establishing a ferry there. So that has been, it was a well-used road. The British and the Americans both went up and down that road throughout the war. All right. Charles, let's talk about what's going on in South Carolina in 1781 leading up to Parker's Ferry. In 1781, of course, um, Nathaniel Green had decided to come back to South Carolina after his uh, bloody battle at Guilford Courthouse on March the 15th. And um, he sent uh, Light Horse Harry Lee to join up with Francis Marion, and they took two key wayposts uh, along the British communication system between Camden and Charleston, one at uh, Fort Watson on the Santee and one at Fort um, Mott on the lower um, Congaree River. At a point in the spring of 1781, Marion felt strong enough to detach Colonel William Harden and about 200 of his um, key men to go back into the South Carolina low country um, to try to store up the uh, old uh, Patriot militia that was there and uh, reassert dominance over the communication between Charleston and Savannah. Um, There were two major road systems that ran fairly parallel. I call them the high road and the low road uh, between Charleston and uh, Savannah. Highway 17 now pretty much mimics the low road and the roads uh, that went um, across the uh, Parker's Ferry uh, was the the higher road or on higher ground. So the swamps weren't quite as uh, wide during flood season. And um, and so there were two ways to get uh, overland from Charleston to Savannah. So Colonel Hardin uh, rides into the low country and uh, basically disrupts British land communication between Charleston and Savannah. 
he uh, wins a, a string of uh, victories and um, uh, is able to um, control uh, commerce, interrupting commerce, capturing uh, uh, Fort Balfour uh, on the Pocataglio River uh, on Highway 17 now, uh, which, by the way, Steve has also uh, done some nice work on and um, is able to um, dominate that part of South Carolina. Um, unfortunately, several things uh, happen. I think you've uh, talked with uh, Chip Bragg about his book on the capture and hanging of Isaac Hayne. That was a, a big uh, incentive. And late uh, summer and fall in South Carolina is called the sickly season because that's when the malaria really gets going and takes a lot of men out. So Marion, for about the month of August, had been corresponding back and forth with Green. Marion's camps were around St. Stephen's, South Carolina. Green was in the high hills of the Santee at Richardson's Plantation. And um, they're talking about going to the relief of um, Colonel William Harden. And Marion finally gets permission in mid-August of 81 to send a detachment to Colonel Hardin to store him up and to um, continue the American dominance. At the same time, both Camden and 96 have been evacuated and thousands of loyalists with their families and their uh, personal property, which is what they would call their enslaved uh, African-Americans at the time, poured into the Charleston area. So the British local commandant there, Lieutenant Colonel Nesbitt Balfour, had a terrible problem. He had maybe uh, 10,000 normal residents of Charleston, plus all the British garrison troops, plus these thousands of loyalists and their families who have poured into the Charleston area. And he's got to feed them. In the meantime, there are ships coming from England but the privateer navy, if you will, uh, or pirates, if you're British, are intercepting all this British uh, shipping. And so there's just not enough food in, in Charleston area to feed everybody. So in the 1st of August, Nesbitt Balfour sends a group to the Lower Santee where they raid plantations, mainly getting rice and cattle, sheep, and anything else they can eat. And at the same time, they plan to do another rice raid on the Cumbie River, which is in the heart of the Low Country, where Hardin is uh, in distress. And among the Loyalist troops is the notorious Bloody Bill Cunningham. Well, Bloody Bill, <laughs> Bloody Bill Cunningham is hard to trace around. We, <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't know where he was in, in August, but he certainly was um, posted at one of the British outposts, probably Dorchester. The British had really pulled in to an area of about 20, 25 miles circle around Charleston. So they had a, a post at Wapata Meeting House, um, headed up 17 toward Georgetown. They had post at um, uh, Monk's Corner, Fairlawn. They had post at Dorchester. They had, uh, of course, post in um, uh, Savannah and, and Ebenezer and Fort Balfour along the main highway. So that was kind of the British front lines at the middle of August of 1780. And, and Cunningham would have been there amongst them. Well, I, I just mentioned that because folks who may not know a lot about loyalists, people, a lot of people don't pay attention to the Tories. The name Bloody Bill Cunningham is pretty well known. But it's, it's amazing what has happened to the British occupation of South Carolina in 18 months since Charleston fell. The situation, as you say, the British have been reduced to a small perimeter around, around Charleston. But with those refugees are loyalist troops, and they've got a fairly sizable number of British troops, including Hessians. Is that not right? Yeah, the British, um, you know, have leased uh, these uh, so-called Hessian troops from the uh, German principalities who are um, King George's cousins. And we generally group them all together and call them Hessians, the guys from Hess Castle. 
normally the troops, since they're expensive for the British, act as garrison troops. But the situation is so dire for food in Charleston that the leader of the rice raid uh, south of Charleston to the Cumbie River is actually a Hessian commander. And so um, it's pretty unusual in the South to have um, the Hessians in command. But that's exactly what um, what happened in, in this particular case. Uh, his name was Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Leopold von Bork. Even Marion had confused who the Hessian commander was in his report. But from later British reports, uh, we know that that's who was in command of this rice raid. Let's move now to the end of August. Marion has, what, about 400 to 500 troops now? Marion has shown up at Colonel Hardin's camp and finds Colonel Hardin sick. He starts trying to call in and gather the troops. Colonel Marion has with him uh, maybe 180 men of his own. Um, He immediately gathers the troops, um, has some other local American militia join him under Colonel Hardin's son, and then um, other loyalist militia come and join him so that he has roughly 400 people. Well, August the 29th, the British are at Isaac Haynes' plantation, which is somewhat ironic. Uh, the man that they had had hanged in in Charleston. They hanged him officially for treason, but he had taken parole. And when he took parole, he said he would not pick up arms and fight against the British. But he did, as did many others, because they considered that the, the British had reneged on what they were going to do after the fall of Charleston. Um, but the British decided to make uh, an example of Hayne. And instead of terrorizing the population, it stirred them up, really ticked them off. Uh, The British are at Isaac Haynes' plantation, and Marion follows. We're looking at August the 29th. Steve, why don't you pick it up from there? Imagine a a very straight road going from southwest to uh, northeast and an intersection that goes, comes in from the north and intersects it at a perfect uh, right angle. And Marion arrives in the evening around 4 o'clock and sets up an ambush. He leaves a very detailed report, but he places his front line 40 yards away from the road, and they tear down some trees to form a sort of what they call an abattee in front of them in order to protect them from being a charge or anything. And it's it's in pretty thick woods. So 40 yards off the road, he puts he puts his main line in a straight line, and then he has a Major Hardin's men retreat about uh, 100 yards behind that front line next to the road. And then behind that line, uh, he places his cavalry on the road, and, the, and these are all swordsmen. And here's the plan that's really unique. What he's planning on doing is he knows that the British are coming up the road, probably either two abreast or maybe three abreast on a narrow road in a column, and they're going to be marching along that road, and he's going to wait until the front van of that line reaches his extreme left on the front line. Then they're going to open up fire, and that'll completely have Marion's front line firing uh, 40 yards off the road directly into a column of British soldiers. Then Major Hardin, which is 100 yards behind that line, is supposed to come up and commence firing at the rear of the Loyalist forces. With uh, Major Cooper and the cavalry being able to use that road to come in behind the entire line and support and trap the British. So Marionwood had a first fire, beautiful shot along that British column. Hardin comes in behind him, and then Cooper comes in behind that. It would have been a a devastating ambush. Unfortunately, as the the battle unfolded, there were about a hundred of of Cunningham's men up at the ferry, and and they knew that the British column was coming up the road. So at dusk, 
a few of them came down the road, and they saw some of Marion's men, that front line, and they fired at them. And Marion's men, unfortunately, fired back. So you're in a dark woods, and night's closing in, and fire like that's going to travel along. The noise of that fire is going to travel a long way. Those few soldiers of Cunningham's men, the Loyalists, turn around and go back up the road as fast as they can. Marion releases a few of Major Cooper's men to chase them up the road and keep them moving up the road. However, by that time, the British column had heard the fire, and the British infantry got off the road momentarily while the British cavalry, uh, these were South Carolina loyalists, and they came charging up mounted dragoons into Marion's ambush, and they took that fire, that first fire, point blank practically, and they were crowded on that road and couldn't turn around. So both an eyewitness of the battle, Sergeant Jarvis, and Marion said that they had to run the gauntlet through Marion's ambush. So they couldn't turn around, so they ran forward back up the road towards the uh, ferry site. By that time, the regular infantry came up, the British infantry came up, and now at that point, Marion's front line is, is perpendicular to the British that are coming forward. They deploy to the left and right on the road. They bring up their artillery. At this point, Hardin's men were supposed to march forward. But according to Marion's report, they did not. And in the middle of this battle, as as Marion is trying to get his men positioned to be able to fire against the British, uh, in other words, turning his line from east-west to north-south, turning it 90 degrees, he probably refused his right flank in order to begin to face the British. One of Marion's men cried out that they were being flanked on the right, which would have been where Major Hardin's men were. So Marion had to withdraw back to that line where Major Hardin was and then continue to fall back because Major Cooper's cavalry did not move. But the British had taken some heavy losses by that time. Uh, All of the artillerymen, which were Hessians, and the artillery was probably positioned on the road, had been killed. All the artillerymen, had, uh, the British, had been killed. So the British also decided to, to retire, and they fell back down the road. So neither one had the battlefield at the end of the battle. Marion, by that time, has he'd been on short on ammunition, so he decided to retire. He says in his report that he marched up to the road and held the road for a couple of hours then the men being exhausted and him being short on ammunition, he retired up the Round O Road for the evening. Uh, the British say that they held the battlefield after the battle, so there's some controversy there. The two in- other interesting parts about this is that when we did all the archaeology, we found almost no lead shot on the north side of the road. We found all of the lead shot from Marion's fire on the east side of the the main road. So that helps to explain how the battlefield unfolded. Marion and the eyewitness both said that they ran a gauntlet. And a gauntlet generally means two-sided, that, you know, this gauntlet is something you run through. The Indian Native Americans would put people... Uh, on on both sides of a line, and they would force them through the line, and the Native Americans would beat them and that sort of thing as as a means of torture. So the general idea of a gauntlet is two-sided, but uh, in this case, there was no two-sided gauntlet. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense, because if Marion did place his men 40 yards off the road, he would have had his men... Uh, firing at each other at about a distance of 80 yards. And I don't think that Marion would have had his militia on both sides 
of the road at different locations, which is the, the you know the special forces would could set up what they call a Z ambush in which the front line is on one side of the road and the back part of that line is on the other side of the road so that that confuses the enemy. But that would have been, in the middle of the dark with militia, a very, very risky thing to do. Another thing is interesting is since that lead shot was all found to the south, that means that when Marion fell back and someone yelled that they were being flanked, my interpretation of that is that Major Hardin did indeed follow orders and try to come up, and that's what the front line of Marion's men thought was um, people who were flanking Marion's left flank in, in that well, case. Well, it, it was getting dark. Yes. Well, it was by that time, it was dark. And so I think the movement that they saw Major Hardin moving forward rattled somebody in Marion's ranks, and that caused the, the line to panic and fall back. Marion fell back, tried to rally the men, but they were, they were so kind of discombobulated that he decided just to call off the battle. Now, an interesting, another interesting thing is, if you remember my description, some of Cooper's men had chased the loyalists at the ferry back up the road to the ferry. So there must have been a little skirmish up there. And there is a pension account by one of the cavalrymen who says that he was wounded severely by a bayonet, or excuse me, by swords play in the battle. And that could not have happened at the main ambush site. It must have happened up at the, um, at the campsite at the actual ferry. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Charles Baxley and Steve Smith about the Revolutionary War battle site at Parker's Ferry. Okay, Charles, the British did suffer severe casualties, 125 killed and 80 wounded. That's basically a third of their force. Well, and not only that, most of the cavalry of the British were wounded, run off, and their commander, Major Major Frazier, who had been severely wounded also at Musgrove Mill, fell off his horse and was almost trampled to death. One of the outcomes of this battle is to further limit the amount of cavalry the British had. So a week later, when the Americans and British square off at Utah Springs, uh, the British are woefully inadequate in cavalry there. My guess is that the British had about maybe 40 to 45 cavalrymen at Utah Springs, and the Americans had uh, probably 400 or 450. And that gives you a whole lot better mobility and ability to um, scout, carry messages, and all the things that cavalry does besides just getting in sword fights. Okay. Let's talk about Parker's Ferry now as uh, a site on the on the Liberty Trail. And Charles, I'm going to turn to you first about to tell us what the Liberty Trail is and how that's being developed. We're very excited to announce that there's a partnership that has been made between the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust and the American Battlefield Trust. They have uh, acquired many dozen pieces of property in South Carolina at um, battlefields, which have been identified to be linked electronically so that a person can get off the interstate and have electronic instructions to uh, go to various places. Parker's Ferry is one of the battlefields that will be on the Liberty Trail that literally reaches all of the South Carolina. The American Revolution was scattered almost in every county of modern South Carolina. So um, Parker's Ferry was purchased a little over 30 acres in January of 2021 from a timber company, Weyerhaeuser, and um, they were very generous in cutting a specific piece out uh, that Dr. Smith identified as the core battle area so that it could be permanently preserved, developed into a park, and interpreted for people who go there. So we love Parker's Ferry because Marion's uh, reputation is that of a fellow who does a lot of ambushes. Uh, Having looked at his uh, tactics, military tactics, um, my opinion is that um, 
He used many, many different types of tactics, but Parker's Ferry is clearly a successful ambush because while the British lost a third, um, it, it appears that um, Marion maybe lost 1% of his, of his uh, men, or maybe 2%. So um, so it's an important site to interpret Marion. It's an important site of communication in, Colum in colonial South Carolina. And um, it had uh, downstream effects on the Battle of Utah Springs. Well, one thing that I'm interested in what Steve said about people were, since the battle, who held the battlefield. Marion really didn't care that much. I mean, his... His were hit and run and staying behind to claim this is my battlefield is not really what Francis Marion was all about. Correct. There was no need to hold the battlefield. He had accomplished what he'd wanted to do. Charles, given the work that you, that you have been doing with the, the Battlefield Trust and the Liberty Trail, there's another site in, in the Low Country that's just been added to that. It's at Monk's Corner. It was the, the, the Colleton property. The um, Carlton property in Monk's Corner is called Fairlawn Barony and then Fairlawn Plantation. Fairlawn Plantation is located at the head of navigation on the Cooper River. And so the British could ship on the tides by boat from back and forth from Fairlawn Plantation to Charleston. So they made a, a major um, post there, mainly for supplies, but men and supplies were shipped. So they would come on ships to Charleston, up by schooner, up the uh, Cooper River to Fairlawn, and then they would go overland to uh, one of the landing points on the Santee River, and they could go up the Santee River to Granby, which is in Casey, or Camden, and, and places like that. But so the Battleground Trust and the Lord Berkeley Land Trust have acquired approximately 80 acres um, of the old plantation, which includes a beautiful extant earthwork readout that the British developed there partially in defense of the uh, plantation. Of course, the readout is uh, maybe a uh, half an acre and the plantation was maybe a square mile or two. And so um, it was mainly for a, a place of refuge for the soldiers that were garrisoning the site in case of attack, which would uh, happen in November of the same year. Is it not true that the Fairlawn, the fort at Fairlawn is, other than 96, it's the only actually existing Revolutionary War fortification in South Carolina, British fortification? Uh, yeah, there's actually one more. Uh, it's not as clearly visible as Fort Fairline or 96. There is a small redoubt at a place called Dunham's Bluff, which is directly across from Snow's Island. And the remnants of that still exist. And it was a redoubt that Marion built early in the war, probably in 1780, when he was in his partisan warfare period there in the fall. And you can go to a place called Dunham's Bluff and, and see that. And where is Dunham's Bluff nearby? Oh, boy. Um, it would be across the PD River from Johnsonville. Okay. Uh, off of 378. All right. Is that going to become a part of the Liberty Trail as well? I don't know. Um, it's currently under the ownership of the Department of Natural Resources. Okay. The, um, the one problem with Dunham's Bluff and accessing it is that the road is not an all-weather road. And um, it's clearly in the floodplain of the PD River because it's exactly right on the PD River. Um, there is another extant Revolutionary War earthwork in South Carolina uh, at Perrysburg. And um, it's um, right on the Savannah River, too. And it's amazing to me that it survives because it would probably flood pretty severely when the Savannah River floods. But it has survived uh, 240 years now. And um, so we're we're blessed. The readout at um, at Fairlawn, though, is certainly the most intact and the easiest to interpret. Charles, this wasn't exactly on the agenda today, but since you are the chairman of the South Carolina Commission on the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War, would you like to give us a, a prelude of what you folks have got planned? 
Yeah, our commission uh, right now is focused up on a couple things. Number one, the um, promotion of the American success in the uh, American Revolution is going to be international. And so we're going to have thousands of visitors who are interested in this aspect of our cultural heritage come to South Carolina. And so we know we've got to get ready for all these visitors so that they can not only see and understand our stories, but to uh, walk where their ancestors walked and, and learn the story of how the Revolutionary War in the South won the war and changed the political expectations um, of the world. So we want to get ourselves ready by developing the parks of the Liberty Trail and, for example, discovering ones like Parker's Ferry so that folks can go there and see where Marion fought. Our second thrust is to discover and tell these amazing stories of the American Revolution in South Carolina. Um, we you know, hope to do that with many different ways. Of course, you, you start by looking at the history and, and finding the characters um, from all perspectives, that uh, stories that uh, were left to us, and uh, figuring out how to amplify them in media and in other ways so that South Carolinians know their own story and can be proud of what was accomplished here. And we can then hopefully uh, apply some good Southern hospitality to our visitors while we share these stories. All right. And it's my understanding that the National Park Service is going to choose five battles or has chosen five battle sites uh, to promote during this celebration. And one of them is in South Carolina. Well, it's the um, whole um, movement on getting ready for the uh, 250th anniversaries um, is fairly new. And the coordination between all of the states and there is a federal commission that is set up to, in essence, uh, celebrate the uh, Declaration of Independence. And then the national uh, parks will be doing all kinds of things, too. All that coordination is just in its infancy. Well, you you mentioned earlier that earlier on the partnership between the South Carolina Battlefield Trust and the National Battlefield Trust, which people associate with the Civil War. But South Carolina was a pilot project, was it not, of that organization, which actually has changed. It's now the American Battlefield Trust. It's not the Civil War Battlefield Trust anymore. We're very lucky that the um, trustees of the American Battlefield Trust have decided to refocus themselves to not only include the American Civil War, but the American Revolution and the War of 1812. And they are busily acquiring property and saving sites. Uh, In South Carolina, right now, there are parks under development at Fort Fairlawn that we discussed um, in Monk's Corner, at the Battle of Camden site, at the Battle of Hanging Rock sites, and at the Battle of the Waxhaws. In addition to those, there will probably be more development at Blackstock's Plantation, which is an undeveloped but beautiful piece of land that the uh, state of South Carolina owns, and at Utah Springs. All of these sites are relatively either not interpreted at all or relatively uninterpreted. So, you know, hopefully we'll be uh, permanently saving sites and permanently putting interpretation in place because during the period of the celebrations of all the different anniversaries, there will be a flux, an influx of uh, tourist and cultural heritage seekers. But I suspect that once we put the infrastructure in place and are willing to share that knowledge, that we'll have um, uh, people coming from South Carolina um, for many, many, many years. That is exciting. Very exciting. Now, Steve, you mentioned that you got into looking at Parker's Ferry because of your work for the Francis Marion Trail. I think Ben Ziegler chaired that committee or commission for a while. Yes, that's correct. What was your what was the mission they gave you? Find every Marion site in South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> in short, they uh, they had a uh, symposium and put together a list of sites, and from that list, there was a top fifteen. And they asked me to find those 15 sites. Uh, 
and we had some success and we had some failures, naturally. Parker's Ferry was one of our successes. Uh, Jacksonboro was, was not something people knew where that was. That was another success. Of course, Snows Island, we don't really find anything that's on the island as of yet. But, of course, we found a major camp across from Snows Island where it was definitely a Marion's camp. Uh, we identified uh, several sites around Snows Island, including Ports Ferry, uh, Witherspoon's Ferry, where there's a beautiful Marion statue there at Venter's Landing, which was uh, during the American Revolution called Witherspoon's Landing. These sites you identified, uh, some of them are still privately owned, right? They're not. They're. I mean, they're on private property. They're not state parks. They're. That's correct. So, how is a site like that protected? It depends upon the goodwill of the land landowner. Yes, that's that's pretty much correct. Yeah, there's there's no other protection. Uh, it's on private land, other than the landowner looking out for it. Well, I, I guess Charles, that's where the Battleground Preservation Trust would come in to try to help out, right? The Battleground Trust at any one time has 10 or 15 different negotiations going on with property owners, and some of them are to acquire some or all of the land that they own that is important. Some of it is to protect uh, land with uh, conservation uh, easements, historic easements, and to do other ways of being able to protect a site. Um, we're blessed in South Carolina with wonderful landowners, and I've dealt with many dozens of them, and most of them either know what they own or when they're told what they're own, they are wonderful stewards of this land. It's the same thing at Parker's Ferry. Weyerhaeuser was a, a great steward of, of this land, and when it was asked, when Steve discovered it and asked to do archaeology, they allowed that, and they allowed... Um, the uh, South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust to purchase the land. So we've had pretty good success, not 100%, but, um, you know, this is uh, not a sprint, it's a marathon, and um, we'll hopefully keep on going for, for years protecting this important cultural heritage of our state and our nation. Let's get back to, to Parker's Ferry. What are the plans for developing and interpreting that site? Well, right now there's some cleanup and clearing of the battlefield, um, which will uh, occur this fall. And then there will be on-site interpretation by way of a site so that the, the a person who can drive there and read the signs and basically interpret uh, this what Steve was talking about um, on the radio today uh, with words and, and with pictures. Uh, the Parker's Ferry Road is like so many of our rural roads. It depends on the county who has hundreds of miles of road to maintain. But Carlton County has been a wonderful partner in this whole um, acquisition. And so they have agreed to take a look at improving the all-weather capabilities of the Parker's Ferry Road, which will be important because your average person coming isn't really going to know whether the road is, is passable or not. This is all fairly low, sticky, muddy ground, and um, it doesn't well drain. And I'm sure that in the 18th century, if you were going through there on your horse or with a wagon, it would have not been any fun either. So um, as the, the electronics, the uh, cell phone-based uh, interpretation and augmented reality uh, is brought up, we hope to have the site cleared, the road improved, and signage on the site so you can see where Marion stood, see where the British came from, see where Thomas Fraser was almost trampled to death by his own cavalry. Okay. Well, and since I've got you two gentlemen on the show, uh, invariably people want to know about Francis Marion, uh, the man in the myth. Is the sweet potato story true? For an older generation, their knowledge of Francis Marion came from The Swamp Fox, which was on television starring a very young Leslie Nielsen. But as a historian, I have always felt that a lot of the myths were not myths, that was the stories were true. And so, Steve, I'm going to turn it back to you first. Yeah, that's a discussion that could go on for another hour. So I will try to summarize it. 
And the, the really the easiest way to summarize that is to understand that the uh, first published biography of Francis Marion was by a gentleman by the name of Mason Locke Weems. Weems was the itinerant uh, bookseller who wrote the first biography of George Washington. And this in this biography, as the became very popular, and as 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 editions came out, you know, he had, he added stories like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree and that sort of thing. And because of the popularity of that book, he was looking for another book that would help sort of identify heroes that would bring together the this new nation called America. And he ran into Peter Ory. Peter Ory was one of uh, Marion's sub-commanders, a, a colonel who was with Marion throughout the war. He had written a memoir of his exploits with Marion. And the two got together, and uh, Weems said to him, gee, I'd like to publish your memoir. And, of course, this would be like uh, Cambridge University Press coming to me and said, hey, Steve, would you like to do a book on? Of course you would, a prestigious publisher like that, you'd go, you're darn right I would. So he handed that manuscript over to Mason Weems. Weems took it back to Maryland and wrote this first biography, which had an amazing amount of mythological and true stories. And uh, so all biographers since then have had to rely on that book as sort of the first one. There had been a sketch, a short sketch done by William Dobbin James, another one of Marion's men, uh, which was first published in a short part of David Ramsey's history of South Carolina in the American Revolution. But this one was the first sort of popular one. And I've studied this book in great detail. Uh, this is the one that people took west with them. I once did a a settlement history of a part of southern Indiana at a military base called Camp Atterbury. And in this early history, one of the founding members of that county was known to have come into there and settled down, and he only had two books, and that was the Bible and the biography of Francis Marion under Mason Weems and Peter Ory. So this was a popular, popular book. It went into, it's still in print today. You can find it everywhere. I don't know how many editions that uh, Weems produced, but it's, like I say, still in print. Having said all that, uh, there are incidences that occur in there that do are factual, and that's the intriguing part of studying Francis Marion is trying to tease out the true stories that were in Ori's manuscript that Weems used and the mythological stories that Weems added that may or may not have any fact at all. Of course, Ori's manuscript is, has been lost. Uh, I've spent years trying to trace it down and run into dead ends. There may not have been one. Peter Force Papers has a list of letters that were used, that James used, that Ori used to put together this biography. That may be it, but I don't think so. I think there is a there are actually three manuscripts of Peter Ory. There's the list of letters. There's his later memoir after the war that he wrote. And then there's this manuscript that was lost by uh, Weems. So that's the short version. Now you can I can get into all kinds of subtleties about Francis Marion and how that book interplays. But like I said, that would be a, a long discussion. Well, it wasn't just because of Weems, but Marion did become a national hero. Uh, New England poet wrote the song of, of Marion's men. Right. So Marion was a, was a hero in real time also. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I'm just saying that his popularity uh, nationwide was greatly enhanced by Weems's book. Uh, also, the, the paintings by John Blake White uh, and the paintings by William Rainey Marion crossing the PD mm-hmm. and revolutionary militia crossing a river and the ride of General Marion. All these were popular early 19th century uh, paintings, which, again, captured the imagination of the American people. All right. Well, 
Alfred has given me the wind-up sign, gentlemen, and so I'm going to ask for any last words before we sign off. And Charles Baxley, I'll talk with you. Well, I wanted to um, give you an idea of what the Congress in Philadelphia wrote on October 29th, 1781. And they passed a resolution, among other things, that said, resolve that the thanks of the United States in Congress assembled be presented to Brigadier General Francis Marion of the South Carolina Militia for his wise, gallant, and decided conduct in defending the liberties of his country, and particular for his prudent and intrepid tack on a body of British troops on the 30th day of August last, and for the distinguished part he took in the battle of the 8th of September. That would be you. Springs. Okay. Very good. Steve? Yeah, it's an excellent wrap-up. I just um, thank you for inviting me to speak a little bit about Parker's Ferry. All right. Well, Charles Baxley and Steve Smith, I would like to thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was great having Steve Smith back on the show, and I've always enjoyed talking with Charles Baxley. The rediscovery of the site of Parker's Ferry, the development of the Liberty Trail, and the celebration of the American Revolution in South Carolina, and its importance to the outcome of the American Revolution is something, quite frankly, that's long overdue. It's a part of our state's history that even many native South Carolinians are unfamiliar with. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.